Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Paul here. Remember, this series contains strong language, descriptions of hunting and fatal accidents. Coming up... Yes, I was very fortunate to get on the machine because there was dozens and dozens of guys who would love to have done it. I refuse to do it and I refuse to do it to this day. The helicopter era lasts for 10 adrenaline-filled years. You shoot past him at 50 mile an hour and you pass the tail rotor and he's backing it up trying to catch up to you, yo-yoing like an old clock. Things like that and, and just sheer excitement. But every day brings near misses. The whole load started spinning and I thought, bloody hell, I'm feeling really dizzy here, absolutely insecure. And I had to shut my eyes. I thought, geez, I'm going to fall off. And sometimes crashes. But at the same time, I say I'm alive. A lot of my mates aren't. My way of coping was I became a believer in fate. When your time's up, your time's up. It's driven by huge profits. But the deer are becoming more wary of the aerial hunters. Greater and greater risks are being taken. This pot of gold is about to dry up, while the risks remain the same. I think that probably a lot lived as if there was no tomorrow, and sometimes there wasn't. I'm Paul Roy. This is Deer Wars. Episode 6, Deer Devils. The mid-60s to mid-70s is a time of momentous change for New Zealand. From the practical, things like decimal currency coming in, to life-changing, with the availability of the pill. The old six o'clock swill is abolished, and youth take to the streets to protest the Vietnam War and the All Blacks tour of South Africa. Television becomes the next big thing. But in rural New Zealand, life doesn't change that much, especially for the venison hunters, who have deer to shoot, and the dream, at least, of fortunes to be made. In the beginning, the deer are pretty easy pickings. I've seen footage of them standing still and staring at the chopper, unaware of the threat. But after a time, the deer start to recognise that the sound of a helicopter means danger. Instead of their natural behaviour of running uphill to the tops, they bolt instead for the bush in relative safety. Sometimes they hide in plain sight. Jamie Scott, something of a legendary pilot on the West Coast, recalls it well. Sometimes we'd see deer, you know, a half mile ahead of us in particular, like a stag would lay down the tussock and lay his antlers back, you know, and if you hadn't seen him way ahead, you'd fly right past him. And my mate Harvey, Makarora pilot Harvey Hutton, who's been flying us around, has seen it too. Well, even now when you see them, they're running. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's, um, 
deer, deer learn real quick, you know. They'll hind to that, you know, they'll hear, hear a helicopter come in and hold in the bush, and once that lead hind runs in the bush, all the rest of them go with it, you know. Sometimes you'll, you'll catch an old hind out, and you, you know, if she's, she'll just do whatever she can to get to that bush, right. you know. So, you know, she knows that it's danger. Yeah. What lets them down a lot of times is they'll be having a stag, an old stag will have a knobby with them, like a young stag, and he's, he's got his head up looking around, <laughs> which gives him away. <laughs> Helicopter crews also start to hang long chains underneath the machine. This means they can recover deer from tricky places, like a ravine or the forest floor where it's impossible to land. The shooters also ride the chain. This is just what it sounds like, and is done simply to save time. And remember, time is money. Hunter Shaw, from near Ta'anau, still remembers his first time on the chain. I'd shot a couple of stags on this particular occasion, and he flew over this little gap, and he'd explained to me prior to this that we had to drop the chain down through the bush. So we had the chain hooked up to the cargo hook underneath. It was on the floor beside me. Flew over and showed him where the deer were. Pushed the chain out, blunk, it went down. Chain at the bottom, then a rope, you know, so we get right to the ground, like through tall forest. And then he said, now all you have to do is just get out onto the skid of the machine. And the hiller is quite a wide-bodied machine. The cargo hook is right in the middle, obviously, so I had to really reach it, like sitting on the skid, get your head down under the body of it and reach out, grab the rope just below the cargo hook and then let go. We will leave Hunter under the chopper, preparing to slide down his chain a hundred feet or more to the forest floor. Something I wouldn't like to do. Some pilots refuse to let their hunters ride the chain at all. Other shooters do it routinely for short and long distances. And there are several deaths when the cargo hooks let go or shooters simply fall off the chain. For Hari Hari resident John Knight, it's just part of the job. I lived on that chain. I rode every valley, every slip from every top or every bottom to every valley on this bloody planet, virtually. That's what it feels like. I rode it virtually daylight or dark. By this time, shooters are also targeting chamois and tar in the Southern Alps. It's even harder to pick up the animals here because the mountainous terrain is practically vertical and there's nowhere to land. John tells me a hair-raising story about this, just one of many. We'd shot a whole lot of animals, mainly far, chamois, so, so to speak, but shot them on a ledge, and it was a low-hanging ledge. You've got the cliff above you, you know. So the pilot comes screaming in, I used to stand on the skid, and with your hand on the doorway, no door, but hand there. And as he'd come in, he'd pull power to pull out. And I just launch off the, off the skid. And I could go 20 feet, 30 feet and land okay, you know. But anyway, I got all the animals gutted, half gutted, and I got the rope set up. But then he couldn't get in. Anyway, I couldn't hook on because he's, he's coming in with the cliffs on the road. The blade wouldn't let him. I'm underneath. But he's, he's way out here. He's suspended 3,000 feet up, you know. So 
he'd fly at me and he'd flick the chain and fly back and flick the chain and fly back until finally I caught it. So now he pulls out in front of me, he's at my eye level, like about five metres or four metres, whatever it is, looking eye to eye. And I've hooked all the animals on and I'm sitting on them. And you might be two or three thousand feet up or whatever. And he's, he's going, yes. And I'm going, yep, I'm ready. And he just reefed the machine up. So he takes you and the animals straight backwards. You shoot past him at 50 mile an hour and you pass the tail rotor and he's backing it up, trying to catch up to you. Yo-yoing like an old clock, you know. Things like that and, and just sheer excitement. It's just unbelievable. Excuse me for being rude. What, what the fuck was in your mind when you were doing that? Because the danger is so high. M minutes, dollars, time. So, so to a large extent it was, was driven by the dollar. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that never entered your head. Thinking I'm gonna make $700 for the day. It was just to get as much animals as you could. So if you're riding that, do you spend a lot of your time looking up at the hook or what do you do? <laughs> No, no, half the time you're looking out past the tail rotor. You're hanging that far back. Depends whether he's doing 80, 90 or 100. If he's pissed off with he's probably doing 100. My fingers used to swell like balloons. Good for old age because there's no wrinkles. But they used to swell and pain and used to try and wrap your arms around and put them under, under your armpits to keep them warm. And the chains are half frozen too, you know. Oh no, it used to get bloody cold, especially when you're doing speed. It may be an everyday thing for John, but like I said, some pilots aren't having it. I refuse to do it, and I refuse to do it to this day. This is Dick Deaker again, who was a ground colour, then a fixed-wing pilot, then on helicopters. In fact, when I last talked to Dick, he was still shooting deer and flying, age 75. Possibly the oldest helicopter pilot in New Zealand. I talked to him in the hangar in Teanau with a fresh breeze rattling the doors. You've got no respect for someone by putting them on the end of a chain because uh, I don't want to be responsible for their death. If something goes wrong with a helicopter or they fall off, whoever's hanging underneath is going to die. There's no, he's not just going to get hurt, he's going to kill himself, you know. And this has happened a few places over in the Kamea River, down the west coast, down in, uh, behind Big Bay. Guys riding chains and uh, falling off or hooks let go or something. One guy just north of the Gorge River, by hopping on the chain, he saved himself a 150 metre walk. Well, he killed himself. He killed himself. He saved himself five minutes walking, but he thought he'd hop on a chain and ride out in the hook or something let go, you know, and he went down through the trees. His pilot flew him back to Haast or wherever uh, he took him to, and by then he'd died on the way, you know, with internal injury. That's ridiculous. If there's a clearing anywhere near, they can walk out, you know. A lot of people made a habit of it and would get along, you know, hanging on one hand and waving with another. But to me, that's, uh, you know, you wouldn't catch me doing that. Keep Dick's story in mind, because we're going back to Hunter Shore, nervously waiting for his first ride out on the chain. So I got down, hooked these deer on, and then he had told me, just stand in the ribcage of the deer, and then I'll just come quietly up, you know, lift you up out through the trees. You may have to fend the odd branch off here and there as you go. Get down, hook the two stags on, stand in the ribcage of one, like he told me, and just hang on nonchalantly onto the chain, fend the odd branch off here and there if you have to which I was doing, he was just slowly raising up. 
Then we cleared the upper canopy of the forest and suddenly I had the feeling that I, I was sort of very exposed, you know, getting quite high here and I thought, oh, I wanted to sit down on the deer, you know, and I was hanging onto the chain very tightly, you know. I felt quite vulnerable, you know. This is for the first time, don't forget. And then he started flying well above tree level. Then he started going down. As he picked up speed, the deer and me, two stags and myself, wrapped around him and hanging on for dear life. The whole load started spinning, doing a circle under the machine, quite a big arc of a circle, but spinning as well within the circle. And I thought, bloody hell, I'm feeling really dizzy here, absolutely insecure and hanging on more tightly still. And I had to shut my eyes. I thought, geez, I'm going to fall off. Hung on and got down at the ground. I thought, God, that was pretty damn scary. And he said, why? What do you mean? This was Sid. And I explained what had happened, all the circling. He said, oh, why didn't you put your arm out or leg out? But he hadn't mentioned that to me prior. But that's all you had to do. Just put an arm out or leg out and the, uh, the wind resistance sort of trued you up. But I mean, that was absolutely the opposite of, you know, every cell in my body was saying, hang on tighter, hang on tighter, you know. Even without taking these risks, the chances of an accident were high and could happen to even the best pilots. Between 1965 and 1975, according to Rex Forrester's well-researched classic The Chopper Boys, 15 pilots or shooters were killed. And while there was no official record of the many serious accidents, just about everyone I spoke to had crashed at least once, most of them several times. So what are the partners and girlfriends? What do they make of all this? I met Bondi at Canterbury Aero Club when I was 19. We got married when I was 21 and he was 22. This is Lynn Bond. The Bondi she's talking about is her husband, Alan Bond. During that time he was getting his commercial licence. So one way of getting flying hours up was he went down to Haast and joined Graham Stewart's and was what they call a strip boy. And they would bring in the deer off the choppers, drop them on the ground, and then he would gut them and prepare them. And so that was when he first got to really work with helicopters. Bondi completes his chopper licence, building up his hours until he gets a crack at the venison recovery game. But his lucky break comes at someone else's expense. Tony Hawker got killed. That was the break. It's bittersweet, because someone loses their life, you get the opportunity. And then you feel a bit guilty about that, but then you realise that that's going to maybe happen to you at some stage, that your husband is going to get killed, and it'll be someone else's chance. That's what it was a bit like, actually. There were swings and roundabouts. It's there all the time, that feeling that, or that thought that you're in that business where one minute you're there and one minute you're not. I think that probably a lot lived as if there was no tomorrow, and sometimes there wasn't.
when I first started, we were getting sort of like 30 a day on, on a good day. But the, the, they got, because well, I was in Fieldland for kickoff, and we, the area on the western side was all Alpine helicopters. We weren't allowed over there. And the private operators were allowed in a couple of blocks and the forestry, so we were only, we were hunting areas that never got spelled. <clears throat> so we were only getting about 30 a day, but Alpine was still getting 100 a day with their machines on the west coast. What was the feeling like? like you, you private operator, oh you know, you had people outside Alpine about them tying that up. Were people pissed off about it? Um, the, well, I was only working for an operator, so it didn't really affect me. Because right. um, I, you know, but the, the guys that owned the business, it's just that they were, because they were trying to get it open, but it was just nearly impossible. But they did get it open in the end. Then they went to a block system where you, you were put in a block for a month, and then next month you're in the next block and you went right through. What Harvey's talking about there is Tim Wallace's latest scheme. Always ahead of the pack, Tim negotiates an arrangement that gives him sole access to Fiordland National Park. Not even ground hunters have been in most of it. Tim dreams up a plan of using a steamer, the Ranganui, as a mothership. He refits it with helicopter pads and a freezer for 600 carcasses. There are quarters for two helicopter crews who will be on board for 10 days at a time. Then he sails down to the fjords. It's a masterstroke with the helicopters shooting 300 deer between them on the very first day. Just as an aside, keeping other hunters out of the park causes a lot of bitterness in the industry. It leads to acts of pettiness and sabotage. More about that later. Red-haired Brian King, inevitably nicknamed Blue, is just 18 at this stage and working on the Ranganui. I talked to him at his deer farm outside Teanau, and you can hear the animals chipping in from time to time in the background. Came down here in 67, was meat shooting down to Hollyford. I had a little Volkswagen car and a trailer and Tim Wallace moved down with Luggett Game Packers and a hired helicopter. There was three or four working from that machine. They needed a cook. I ended up cooking down at Murray Gunn's camp for those fellas and got really keen wanting to get up on the helicopter and I had my own jet boat as well at the time and we did a bit on Lake Tiana. It was a great lifestyle but the helicopters were just something that everyone tried to get into. I guess I was very fortunate to get on the machine because it was dozens and dozens of guys would love to have done it. But at the same time, I say I'm alive. A lot of my mates aren't. When I was gutting for Errol and Bill, the three of us would fly off the ship in the sounds. Bill would drop me off on the first available point where they were going to work and Errol and him would go away hunting and I'd probably sit there for half an hour or so. They would come back with three or four deer, drop them. They'd shoot up to 20 at a time. After that, you sort of forgot where they were. And I just gutted. You'd be gutting 130, 140 deer a day. And a lot of the times you had to work fast because you had the helicopter waiting you just worked like that and you just went full on all day in those days. Earning good bucks, was that part of the... Deal? That was the big 
thing where you're earning huge money, but the more you earn, the more you spend. <laughs> where is it all gone? <laughs> so when you got the opportunity to shoot, how did that arise? That happened after we had a bit of a whoopsie. When Blue says they've had a bit of a whoopsie, I know by now to go into a bit more detail. With these guys, a whoopsie or a fright can mean anything from a cut on the leg to a full-on crash. Passenger side door of the Hella helicopter catch was broken, so we had it tied up with a bungee cord. So for anyone to get in, they had to climb across the shooter's side, which the door was off always, and step across between the console and Blackie into the other seat. You can see where this is going. A chopper with two doors for getting in and out is now reduced to one and involves someone stepping between the pilot and the instrument panel to get to their seat. Went out this particular morning. It was a dicey morning whether we should go or not. The weather was packing up. We'd shot seven deer. Phil had dropped them in this saddle and it was getting quite breezy. When the helicopter came in, it was battling into the wind to pick me up. And they had seven deer, and I was gonna just grab hold of the strop and hook it on. Now I can still air stand up and stepped across. And unfortunately, he dragged his foot through, kicked the mags off. Kick the mags off, or kicking off the engine magneto switch. This turns off the engine that powers the blades. And helicopters don't fly when the motor stops. The motor quit right above my head and because once the motor stops the tail rotor spins around the body of the chopper and I can remember diving out of the road as the tail rotor over the top of me. The noise as it went away was just as it disappeared and um, it was that swishing noise until he hit this ginormous beech tree on the way down and it was just one big horrible noise. Boom. In silence. Alan Bond, Bondy, is by now a pretty good pilot and is inevitably poached by Tim Wallace. Tim has an eye for talent, Lynn Bond remembers. So we drove down to Tiana and we arrived between Christmas and New Year of 72. And I was pregnant with my first, so I was living in a caravan. Next door to the Ponderosa, where all the single guys lived. So what was that like? Did that change things when you knew that you were expecting? I realised I wanted a house, not live in a caravan, so Tim gave us the opportunity to buy the section so that we could build a house there. So we parked the caravan in the ute there and lived there while the house was being built. Did Bondi get on to good money sort of virtually straight away? Yes, and we had bought ourselves a caravan and a ute on higher purchase and that was quite a lot of money for us, but we had it paid off in six months. Bondi and Lynn had a good life in Teanau, staying for 11 years and eventually having five daughters. But trouble was never far away. During that time, there would have been certainly accidents and probably deaths. What was the impact when there was death in the dead community? That was quite huge. I mean, it was friends that you were losing. I don't know how many there were all together, but you walk round the graveyard in Tianau and the young ages that they are on the stones in their 20s and 30s, and it's, it, 
it's probably got the most number of people that have died at a young age in Tiania. It's quite sad. They're your friends and then all of a sudden they're not there and you're going along to their funeral. Just the nature of the game. I have walked through the town cemetery, a peaceful and reflective place surrounded by trees in the hills above Teano. It was not that hard to find the graves of the fallen hunters and still be struck by how young they were, 22, 21, 19. One headstone had the famous lines from Robert Louis Stevenson. Home is the hunter, home from the hills, and the sailor, home from the sea which seemed about right. It took me a good five minutes to just pluck up courage to run away down to have a look. Probably had to go downhill three, four hundred metres straight down this big rough shingle slide to where they were. And when I got nearly to the site, Bill came stumbling out of all the rubbish, a mangled wreck, holding his head, and that was a big relief. The Bill mentioned was Bill Black. We heard from him some time back, cheating on his helicopter licence, but he is by now a very skilled and productive pilot. Brian King came down and looked at me and I remember looking up and he said, Jesus, I thought you were dead, (laughs) you know. So go down and see how Earl's getting on. For quite a few minutes, we couldn't find Earl because he didn't have time to sit down and get his seatbelt done up. He took off like a a missile through the air, through the trees, and he landed several metres downhill in amongst some rocks. And went down there, and Earl was bleeding out the mouth and out the ears and out the nose, and so Earl was in quite a bad way. I immediately get out the first aid kit. I got the book out, St John's book. All it said in the book was, this patient must be immediately admitted to hospital. Well, (laughs) I was going to give him morphine. I had it there ready, but... Looking back, if I didn't have killed him, because he was just coughing up blood. If I could morphine and gone to sleep, bump. Bondi had an accident while he was down in Tiana. That's Lynn Bond again. Her husband Bondi is now an experienced pilot, but like all of them, has his own whoopsies. It was a Friday night, and I had gone to bed early and gone to sleep, and woke up about ten thirty, eleven o'clock, and realised he wasn't home. I thought he may have gone to the pub on the way home, then maybe gone to a party, because that used to happen. But I wanted to drive out to the hangar to see if the cars were there, because if I knew if the cars were still there, then something had happened. So I kept putting it off and putting it off, ringing anybody, because you don't like to make a fuss. And back in those days, you didn't make a fuss because you got laughed at. So you tended not to make waves before you were sure. So I waited till about midnight and then rang the other guy's wife, Julie Paulin. She said, oh, she was worried too. Thought that Tick was at the pub. I said, hey, just before that, can you drive out to see if the cars are still there? And she drove out and they were. At that stage, it was about 1.30 in the morning. I rang Errol Brown or someone like that to say that Bondi hadn't come back from his flight. The next morning, they went out at 6.30 in the morning and found the three of them. 
Bondi was burnt. He had third degree burns around his middle because he had got knocked out and came up against the tailpipe of the Hughes. Evan Brunton was on board. He was the shooter. He had a dislocated hip. Oh, and Bondi had a dislocated shoulder too. Tiki Paulin was fine, so that was great. The very fact that Lynn can say, that was great, with these sort of injuries, tells you a lot about the time, when anything less than a death counts as a win. That was 6.30 in the morning, so Julie and I had sat up all night waiting to hear if they were all right. And they were, which was great. And the next morning, they went out, picked them up, brought them back in, and then Bondi and Evan went into hospital. And then it was about another six weeks of recovery for Bondi, which was difficult because I had three little children at that stage. And Lynn, when that six-week period was up, or when he was recovered again, did you talk about whether he should be continuing doing that same job at all? Did that come up? Flying was, yeah, you just knew he would. I'd never say don't fly, never said don't fly. Did you ever actually privately wish that he would do something else? No. No, because I knew he wouldn't be him if he wasn't flying. It was so much part of his life. He wouldn't be Bondi without his flying. You're not having the same guy if you're saying you can't fly anymore. Wouldn't have liked to have given him flying or me choice. <laughs> Probably be flying. But my way of coping was I became a believer in fate. When your time's up, your time's up. And that way you can cope because there's nothing, absolutely nothing anyone can do about it. Once we got Errol in a comfortable position and Bill sat there with him, I had to go for help. We're back with Brian King in the bush with a badly injured Errol Brown. The only help was straight down to the sounds in, in Brakesy. I had to go from the bush line, which is three and a half thousand feet down to the sea. And I think I virtually ran full belt all the way down. And there was a guy fishing there called Joe Cave. I knew where his hut was, away across the other side of the sound. I had 40 bullets in my rifle. I got a fire going on the edge of the sound. Tried to make as much smoke as I could. Fired three shots right across the sound. It was dead calm. Did that every quarter of an hour to fire another three. And I knew Joe would be over there somewhere. Fortunately, and fortunately for Errol, he probably wouldn't be alive to this day now. And I saw this little dinghy coming, I could just see the V in the water away across, so I just aimed way above his head and fired. That was enough. He came across in his dinghy, and when he saw me on the beat, that saved us. I jumped in his dinghy, we went straight back across to his hut, which he had radio, and I called up. All hell broke loose. The helicopters were looking for us at that stage. Roy McIvan, he came down, picked me up, and um, we flew back, straight back up there and organised, got stretches. And Errol had lain there for about nine hours at that stage. 16 broken ribs, punctured lung. And our hardest job at the time was to get him on the stretcher. And he must have thought, if I don't get on the stretcher, I'm going to die. And he stood up took two steps and lay down on the stretcher. Put me in the stretcher and they're hooking it onto the um, 
onto the hook and I said to Jock Murdoch, geez, make sure that bloody thing's hooked in there properly, you know. <laughs> that was the scariest part, was flying down on a stretcher underneath the helicopter. Reasonably high altitude. Went right across to Beach Harbour, landed me on the beach there, and the float plane was already there, so the doctor was there, I think it was Dr Moore from Tianyu. He gave me a very lovely injection, and I just thought, oh, this is quite peaceful, so... <laughs> well, I'd probably only been going with Errol for about a year, maybe, something like that. And I'd come off afternoon duty and sat down to have a smoke and <laughs> a cup of tea and watch the news, and it came on the news. I thought, oh dear me, I'm in a bit of a dilemma here. This is Carol, a nurse in Dunedin, who was going out with Errol. Because I'm only the girlfriend. Do I rush down there now, tonight? What do I do? Anyway, I'd calm down and managed to go down the next day and then had regular visits to Kew Hospital after that. It was pretty scary watching it on the news. So there's an interesting postscript to the story. Brian becomes a shooter, happily not dead man's shoes this time. Brian takes over from Errol, who's in a hospital with multiple broken ribs, a punctured lung and other injuries, and who never really goes back to shooting again. And Errol marries Carol, who moves to Teanau and takes over the vital job of radio operator for the helicopter crews. So what was that like, the job of being a radio operator? Because it was pretty important, but I don't think it's a sort of overlooked. Yeah, they were pretty scary times in a way. One of the worst things I remember was if the guys forgot to call you when they came back in at night, after dark, and, you know, you're sort of starting to wonder what was going on, but you wouldn't want to ring the wives or the girlfriends in case they got worried and there was no need to worry. There was quite a few occasions that I just used to drive out to the airport with the fingers and toes crossed thinking, I hope that helicopter's there when I get there, and of course there were occasions when it wasn't. And for me, I was probably a bit over conscientious about looking after these guys. They always used to say to me, oh, and I'll be all right, don't worry about me, but we've lost a lot of good blokes. What were the pressures like on the <laughs> sort of wives and the, or the partners, the families of the, of the men who were flying? Uh, a lot of them just used to switch off. They just didn't even want to think about it. In fact, I think most of them were like that. And some of them used to say to me, Carol, if anything's happened, I want to know straight away. And others would say to me, no, I don't want to know. So, you know, I had that pressure on me of who I should tell what and who I shouldn't tell. There was one particular accident. I remember that the wife hadn't been told, but she knew that something had happened. By the time the police got round to her place in the morning, she'd locked herself inside. It was so absolutely beside herself, she just didn't want to see anybody. It was pretty tricky. As for Bondi, he recovers from this crash. But while he's in Teanau, he has several more over the next two decades, testing Lynn's belief in fate. You know how people say that they have a feeling that something's going to happen? They wake up and they feel as though they've got a premonition. I never had those, never. When it does happen, I had no idea it was going to happen. It was 10.30 at night. We'd been to the pictures together in Christchurch and we're on our way back. And we got a call from the police about 9.30 and they 
said that there were some guys that were trapped on a river at Rakaia and it was rising floodwaters. So we drove back to Mount Hutt, but on the way back there was fog. So I said to Bondi, don't try and fly back. I will come down and pick you up at Rakaia. He took off at 10.30. I didn't go to bed because I thought, well, I'll be going down to Rakaia to pick him up anyway. And then I got a phone call from the police at quarter past 11 saying, how long does it take to get to Rakaia Bridge, main south road? I knew then something had gone wrong and the police knew that something had gone wrong. So they got an Iroquois out to rescue the guys that were missing, that had got caught by the floodwaters. I stayed up the whole night waiting and waiting. A policeman came from Methven to see me about quarter past three in the morning and we talked. And I said that I wasn't ringing anybody till the next morning because everyone needed their sleep, just like my girls that were all in town at that stage. So I never let on to anybody until at six o'clock in the morning, the police rang and said it's going to go on the news, so you'll have to let your family know. So that's when I rang the girls in Christchurch and said to come out. My focus was that we were lucky to have had him for as long as we did, because he'd had about six helicopter accidents over the time. Engine failure was one, a piece of dirt and the fuel another. So six over the time is a lot. That was my way of coping with it, was we'd had 27 years of marriage. It had got better and better, and he died doing what he loved. We were lucky to have had him for as long as we did. How did that fit in with your theory of saying that you, you, know, you came to believe in fate? Kind I of? still believe in fate, yeah. I still believe in it. When your time's up, your time's up. Mm. So that must have been in some way some consolation for you. Oh, it is, yeah. It helps. And it, when you've had that in the back of your mind for a long time, that it, it could be any day that he's gone, it is a consolation. Mm. Coming up in the next episode, we look at the so-called deer wars that erupt over who should access Fiordland National Park. It's the beginning of the end, as the hunters start to shoot themselves out of a job. We were having a really hard job making pay, in fact, we weren't making it pay. We were lucky to go out and get five or six deer, and it would be for two and a half, three hours. So things were getting quite desperate. That's next time on Deer Wars. Deer Wars is written and presented by me, Paul Roy. It's engineered by Alex Harmer. The executive producers are Katie Gossett, Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Where's that dust coming from? 
Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.